So we're continuing on with unconditional election. And we started talking about the answer to the question, is God just? And we're going to continue with that. And we'll give a little, little review on this. Is God just? Can you guys see the, the colored um, markers okay? No. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Oops. Well, that's okay. I'm not going to use that then. <clears throat> um, so, a little recap on is God just? We saw, um, we saw three points um, that we want to keep in mind as we move forward uh, exploring this issue. And the first point that we saw what do we as human beings deserve? And our answer to this basically is justice. That's all that man can demand is justice in anything. Anything beyond or in addition to justice is mercy. And salvation is based on mercy. Third point, in salvation, if we are required to add anything to the merciful salvation of God, if we are required to perform any work whatsoever, or if in fact, apart from requirement, if we were able to add to it ourselves, actually what we would arrive at is injustice. Because none of us are equipped equally for that good work based on many circumstances in our life. With that review in mind, please open your Bibles. We're going to start off again in the uh, idea of reviewing. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to read the first 24 verses. We've been spending a lot of time in Romans chapter 9. So let's put that all together. We're going to read over it, follow along as I read it, and then we're going to again examine certain elements of this that Paul is writing about. So, in Romans 9, 1, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, 
is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on him whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on him on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So thus God has spoken on election through the Apostle Paul. This is divinely inspired um, word from God. So with this idea of asking, is God just? And looking at the recap, what we deserve, what, what God offers to us, and how we cannot add to it, in this idea of is God just, we're left with what might be called two irrepressible objections. There's two objections that come up that continually come up. They, they cannot be, um, they can be satisfied, um, but they continually arise over and over again. So it's important that we, that we deal with them. If I throw enough of these on the ground, you're going to see me do a little soft shoe as I, as I step on them. So that should be interesting, huh? Liven things up a bit. Okay, the first question that we want to deal with. Should God show mercy to 
everyone. Should he? Well, the problem is when we start talking about should, what's implied in this should is the thought that God ought to or that he must show mercy to everyone. So it's implying that there's an action required for justice to be done. And as soon as we use these words, we're back into the category of justice. We've left the category of mercy. So if there's a should or a must involved, then we're no longer dealing with God's mercy. We're dealing with something completely different. As we've seen in our last session, Justice can do nothing but send sinners deserving of God's judgment and wrath to hell. There's no way apart from that in justice. And it's not justice that we need from God for salvation, is it? We have justice. Every human being will get justice. But what we require for our salvation is grace. It's mercy, completely apart from justice. And is that something that we can demand of God? Can we demand grace? No, no, you can't demand grace of anyone, much less God. So the second question that we should, that we have to deal with, I would say, is... Why? Why doesn't God show mercy to everyone? sounds very much like the first question, but there's some marked differences in it that, that, are, that are very important. So I would say that this second question really is raised by someone who understands this difference between justice and mercy, that, that the questioner in the first place here, the first question, maybe doesn't understand. Now we're moving on to someone that does, but they're asking a question as to why. This person still wonders, why is God selective in his actions? After all, God could show mercy to everyone, couldn't he? I mean, after all, he's God. He could do what he chooses to do. Now, there may be very good reasons that we could... Um, speculate why God does not do that. But just speaking in the general category of the definition of God, God is God because he can do whatever he wants. He has all power, right? But we know from Scripture and from um, the teaching of the church historically 
that God doesn't show mercy to everyone. <clears throat> so in this question, we're forgetting about this word should, right? We saw how briefly we looked at how that's problematic. We're throwing, we're throwing that one out. <clears throat> and we're asking instead why. Now why, I think, is a very good question. Um, it's a proper question to ask because by asking this, we're seeking understanding. We're not demanding something of God that's implied in God ought to or God must um, do something. And by the grace of God, we have a God who has given us intellects to explore and to ponder and to ask questions so that we may gain in knowledge and understanding. And this question is not demanding of God that he, that he um, adhere to human ideas of right and wrong. No, it's not asking that. Um, but it's a more difficult question, I would say, because we do not know God's reasons unless God reveals these reasons to us through his revealed word, through the Bible. Now, does God reveal all of his thoughts, all of his actions? Does he explain everything to us in the Bible? No, I, I see uh, many of you shaking your head. No, that's a very good understanding. You understand that, no, God, God does not reveal everything to us. <clears throat> in, in what we just read in Romans 9, in verse 15, <clears throat> this question, I think, seems to be answered at least. In 9.15, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, we're only told that this is the way God operates, that God will do as he wills. So, in other words, a perfectly legitimate answer to this question is that the why is none of our business. That does not set well, especially in our culture. Our culture has erased most personal boundaries. People feel perfectly fine with asking you the most intimate questions. And people are astounded if you do not want to answer the most personal questions. So, this, this is a, this is a, that's a difficult response, I would say, in this day and age for unbelievers, at least. And, and perhaps some or, or many Christians, that something is none of our business. Does God owe us an answer? No, of course not. That, that kind of leaks back to our first question, right, about the should. Should God answer every question I have? You may have asked or you may have stated or certainly you have heard people say, when I go before God, I will ask him such and such. That's all well and good. And perhaps there's a time in eternity where God has a Q&A session. Maybe, maybe there's big lecture halls where we'll learn stuff. Maybe. But you've also heard people who say they will demand of God an answer. I, I recall a famous talk show host saying 
He's going to demand, if there's a God, he's going to demand that God will answer why children have or get cancer. Now that is the epitome of pride. And we must guard ourselves from that. So getting back to the question here, there, there's one revealed answer, though, that God gives. He does tell us something about this. And we find it in Romans 9, where we just read. And it is in verse 17, where Paul is quoting from Exodus. And Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I, that's God, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This verse is dealing with the topic of reprobation. We've, we've looked at that, um, and here it is, comes up again as, uh, as an explanation. And explains that at least one purpose of God's passing over, or repro- reprobation, passing over some people, is to display his power. So that his sovereign name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. In other words... God considers it important that we should know that he is all-powerful, especially in overcoming and judging those who stand against him, as Pharaoh did at the time of the Exodus. So, through this, we can see that God is revealing his character to us. And that is important, obviously, we can tell from Scripture God wants us to know his character. He wants us to understand who the one true God is and how different he is from every other deity that fallen humans have set up throughout history. And a few verses later in Romans chapter 9, Paul enlarges on this idea. And we see in verses 22 and 24 how he does this. Paul writes, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? That should be underlined, has endured with much patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory, God's glory, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even of us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God has endured with much patience. Let's park there for just a moment and think about this. We think about verses in the Old Testament. Often, God is described in this way. In Exodus, um, he's described like this. And in, in the Psalms, he's described like this. And I quote, The Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, this is a description, like I said, that's repeated often in the Old Testament. There's a lesson there. We're being told something about the character of our God. And Paul's repeating this when he talks about this, this idea of reprobation that, is, that could be hard for us to understand, maybe even difficult to swallow. We don't like this idea, maybe, because we think immediately of people we know and care about that seem to be in that category, at least at the present moment. But God says, 
excuse me, Paul says that God is enduring the rebellion of sinners with much patience. So think about this. If God shows great patience to those whom he knows will never be saved, God knows this, right? We do not, but God knows who his elect are. He has chosen his elect. He knows others will never be saved, but yet he shows great patience to them. Should we not then ourselves, those who are among the elect, show a little patience to those who appear at this point in our present time to not be elect? Who very well may be in God's time elect at some point in human history. That is something that strikes deeply in my heart. And that will strip much pride away from us when we consider it. So what God knows and what we know, what we don't know, um, pondering this, it made me think of... um, of the account in Genesis chapter 18. Well, let's, let's turn there. Genesis 18 chapter, or excuse me, verse 22. If I just quote it from memory, I won't do it justice. Genesis 18, we're going to start in verse 22. And I'm going to read to 33 here, to the end of the chapter. So the men, we read in Genesis, the men being those three visitors to Abraham, one of which Abraham recognizes as the Lord God, Yahweh. This is a visible appearance of God, what we call a theophany. So there's a visible Yahweh who's, who's appearing here along with two angels. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? See, God had revealed to Abraham that he had come to see what he had heard in the prayers of his people about the wickedness in Sodom. Now, did God have to do this? Did God not know unless he showed up on the scene? No, certainly not. But there's a message here. There's a message for Abraham, and there's a message for us why God appears in this theophany, this God appearance, that God desires true justice and that God is involved personally and intimately with the affairs of his human image bearers. So he tells Abraham this, that he's come because of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham continues with this plea or this argument in verse 25, far be it from from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose, suppose, five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten, ten, just ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So we know what happens in the account, right? We know that Sodom is destroyed. What does that tell us? That there were not ten righteous men found in that city. Did God not know this? Did God have to go there to see If God doesn't know, then he's not God, is he? He's like one of these lesser deities that mankind creates. What came to mind when I was thinking about this was, I've heard it said more than once in the church, and and perhaps you have too, When people, when believers consider the culture that we're in and the things that we see going on around us in the world, that some will say, well, if God doesn't come quick, if Christ doesn't return, if the earth's not destroyed, whatever they they lead, then God owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And I ask But, oh, what does that say about you, man? Are you not considered righteous by God? Are you not saved by Christ? Is not Christ's righteousness given to you? God said he would save the most wicked city of biblical example if there are ten righteous. I would say that we are seeing the evidence of a merciful yet just God in the fact that he is enduring with great patience vessels of wrath. And we should not forget that. That we, apart from the work of Christ and God's election, that we did nothing to deserve, we would be amongst that group. So we see God's wrath, power, patience, glory, and mercy all displayed in this doctrine of election on one hand and in reprobation on the other. All of these things can be displayed when we have both of these doctrines. And this, I think, is key. This idea that God thinks that the display 
of his attributes to all people are worth the entire drama of human history. Everything that humanity has gone through. Think of the highs, think of the lows especially. Think of the horrible things that we're aware of. The things that we're aware of in recent history at times can pale compared to things that perhaps you're not aware of in more ancient history. It's not a pretty story. Yet, God thinks that all of this is worth it. Does that not remind you of what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50? What you've intended for evil, God intended for good. That somehow God takes this mess that fallen humanity has made of this world and turns it to the ultimate good. And we see this in these doctrines if we think about how they work together. And they must work together. We cannot have one without the other. The revelation of God's glorious attributes is God's grand priority. That's the story of the Bible, right? When we understand it properly, that it is about God. He is the central character, and it's a story about him. About, and when I say him, I'm talking about the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot, a cast of characters in there, right? But the story's not about those characters per se. It's about what God does in their lives, what God does with the world. This still, I, I realize, will, will not satisfy some when we come to our questions on God being just or not just. Undoubtedly, some will ask, but why should it be necessary for God's name to be glorified? Why? The answer to that is simple. It is necessary because it is right. It is right for God's name to be glorified. God is Glorious, that's the truth. And it's always a correct answer if we speak the truth, isn't it? Because this is a universe, obvious, I state the obvious right here, it's a universe run by God, not by us. Now, that some people I don't think have caught on to that yet. I know people, you know, some in my own family that haven't caught on to that, that they're not running the universe. And there are people in every walk of life that I'm sure you've encountered that think they not only have responsibility for their life, but they have responsibility to run your life and his life and her life and their life and thus perhaps the whole universe. But what is right will be done in the end. God will be honored and all will bow before him. We are told that. Scripture promises that. That's a promise to us. Is it a promise to the unbeliever? No, it's a warning. It's a warning to the unbeliever that this will happen. You will bow. You can do whatever you want at this point in human history to deny that God is sovereign over all, but eventually you will be called into account and you will bow the knee. I don't think, and I'm sure many of you don't either, that people will need to be forced to bow at that time. Perhaps some will. But it would just seem to me when, 
when we are faced with the ultimate glory that we cannot even really fully fathom that we have no alternative but to drop to our knee. We see this, don't we, with the, with the men in the Bible that encounter lesser beings than God, that encounter celestial beings, heavenly beings that are nowhere near close to God's glory, and they drop to their knees, or they faint, their knees, turn to, their knees buckle. They say their insides turn to water. Imagine a God denier at that point in time in eternity when he or she realizes the reality of God and how glorious God is. So again, we've asked the question, is God right to act as he does? And what we've found is this, that God acts the way he does because he is He is just. This takes us back to our question that we started exploring in the last session. God is just. He he glorifies his name in displaying wrath towards sinners. Even his anger, even his wrath brings glory to God. And riches of glory towards us who are being saved. Because this is the only right thing for God to do, to glorify himself. If he did not glorify himself, then would he be God? With all the attributes we know that the Bible reveals of him, if that was not God's paramount, I hate to use this word because it's a human word, motivation, um, would he be God? And here's, 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 the, um, here's the thing that's, that's like a dichotomy that's built into this, something that just kind of screams against what we know is, did God humble himself? Yes, he did. God the Son humbled himself to become incarnate, to take on human flesh, to dwell in this tent of, 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 of mortal uh, flesh and bone. But he, God did this because he chose to do it because even that humbling brings unspeakable, unknowable, unmatchable glory to God because it's not what one would expect, is it? We don't find this anywhere else. We don't find any false deity that does this, that lowers himself or herself into the mud and mire, so to speak, of humanity in order to rescue his or her people. The lesser deities remain aloof and demand things. They do not present themselves as sacrifices. And it's God's justice, not his injustice, that causes him to operate in this way. If we object to this, then we're operating by a different standard than what God presents to us in the Bible. And the biblical standard is really the only standard that we can operate by, because any other standard is what? It's sinful, right? It's sinful because it goes against what God's word 
tells us, what it, what it reveals to us. Hence, we read Paul's confrontational question. He's speaking to people throughout the ages, not just those in the Church of Rome that he was writing to, not just the early Christians, not just the Jewish Christians who were struggling with this idea that God would allow Gentiles into his plan of salvation. The question is for all of us of all times, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? So our questions, again, are good. It is fine to ask questions. That's why God has inspired men such as Paul to write, you know, these, these great theological treatises, which at times, we must admit, are difficult to grasp and understand fully. Because God knows he has, we have inquiring minds. He's given us these minds, has he not? And he's given them to us for a purpose. So it's not, it's not we're not being better Christians by just accepting blindly on an exterior sort of uh, fashion that we just believe it because, you know, God said so. That is wonderful if it also reflects our interior feelings, our interior thoughts, our inner person. I was raised in a religion, a cultic religion, where appearances and outward demonstrations of acceptance of the tenets of that religion, which was Christian science, was paramount. I just had a a chance to visit with my favorite uncle um, last weekend. He was down here and unexpectedly, you know, uh, came and visited and stayed with us for a couple of days. He was my Uncle Jack when I was a boy. Loved him, still love him. Um, And we were talking about our experiences being raised in this cultic religion and how difficult it was and how it was the mere adherence, outward visible adherence to the tenets of that faith, which if you're really interested, sometime I I can share some of them with you. Don't ask me what they mean because I will not be able to explain that. I was talking to that with my, my Uncle Jack. We had something we had to learn um, in that church. It was called the Scientific Statement of Being. And basically, that was the creed of the Christian science religion. And if I were to recite that to you, you would ask me, Ken, what, what does that mean? And I would tell you, I have absolutely no idea. And I never heard it explained to me in a way that made sense. But every single Christian scientist that we knew, including... Jack's parents, my grandparents, would nod sagely as that is being recited. And if we had difficulty in life, you know, if we, if we had, if our minds weren't right, so to speak, that's basically what the Christian science religion, it's a mind religion, you know, it's how you think, you know. And um, if you're thinking improperly, then that is sin, and that brings bad things into your life, all sorts of, you know, an illness or, or, or what have you. And that you would just, re- you could recite the scientific statement of being, and that would make, you know, everything right. We are not, 
God does not expect that of us. That, that, is not, that is not a true and honest faith, is it? Just to demonstrate something to other people. Look how holy I am. Look how good I am. Look what a wonderful follow, follower of Mary Baker Eddy I am. I read all her writings. How you do that and stay awake, I have no idea. But I read all her writings, or I pretend to. I have a library of them, gathering dust, you know, and the bind, bindings never cracked. That is not Christianity. Christianity is real. It's a real faith. God expects us to, he knows. He, he knows we will struggle because he made us. So these questions are good. Never think you're not allowed to ask a question. When we're having a Bible study, you know, Wednesday night or whatever, or you just have a question after, after a sermon, you know, speak to Pastor Steve, Pastor Mike, or myself. Ask your questions. That's what we want. That's the desire of our heart, to help you grow and understand your faith. No one will think the less of you because you ask a question. No one will think the less of you because you don't understand something that may be very experienced, educated, learned men have struggled with for years to get a handle on. So, with that, we're going to wrap up our topic of Is God Just? And next week, we'll continue with unconditional election and we'll move on to a, um, another uh, part of it, which is we're going to look at the benefits of the doctrine of unconditional election. We're going to see how this is a wonderful doctrine and how actually it helps us. It's not something that we need struggle with. It is, it is beneficial. So with that being said, let me close in a word of prayer and we'll have a short break before the 11 a.m. Uh, preaching. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your goodness, for your graciousness, and for your patience that you endure with much steadfast love your human image bearers. Father, we need that patience. We need that love. We need that grace. Without it, we are lost. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to explore this. May we use it to glorify you. May we use it to better ourselves, to better our understanding of you. Father, bless the rest of this morning's service. Bless the sermon as Pastor Steve comes forward to deliver the message and the music that as we raise our voices in worship of you. May it all glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.